Welcome to the Vineyard Justice Network podcast. The Vineyard Justice Network exists to empower vineyard pastors and leaders to pursue and enact the justice of God's kingdom. VJN focuses on the interconnectivity of freeing slaves, ending poverty, and tending creation. Today we will be hearing from Jamie and Michelle Wilson, the senior pastors of Coast Vineyard in San Diego, California. Michelle and Jamie shared in the fourth plenary session at our 2014 VJN conference, Kingdom Justice, Vineyard Values. The subject of their talk, Partner for Justice in the Neighborhood. I just want to say a huge thanks also to Kathy and to Cheryl, yep, and to Steve Hamilton. I think, I don't know who the whole team is, but yeah. Right after said meeting that Kathy just mentioned, Kathy's yet-to-be husband, Caleb, came out and lived with us, and he did an internship, and one of the things uh, I tasked Caleb with was to uh, make a database of all the justice ministries in the country of the vineyard, Um, because we didn't know. We were doing residential ministry to the poor, and he worked for months just to get callbacks, and he's like, I'm sure they're doing something, but I don't know what they're doing. I can't find out, and so... He's a hardworking guy, and by the end of the summer, we had nothing usable. And so just to see, just to see a Vineyard Justice Network and to see this uh, taking on flesh is great, and I really just am grateful for the work that the team has done to uh, get us to this point and to envision a uh, future for justice in the Vineyard. Awesome. Michelle. Awesome. Well, it's, it's exciting to get to be here and to share with you guys. I'm feeling a little bit actually in awe of all the people who have spoken before us. Just, I want to echo what was said earlier about just the quality of the teaching here. I feel like I've learned and absorbed just so much. And honestly, not just the teaching, but I think all of the people that I've met, just every conversation I've had with every one of you guys has really just blown me away. Um, you're all engaged in such just wonderful journeys of courage and compassion and it's just a privilege just to get to meet you guys and get to be here so thanks a lot for for having us and for giving us a chance to to share some of our thoughts with you just as jamie mentioned earlier a few little things about us uh the lord saved us out of addiction when we were college students and called us into this crazy journey of following jesus and a life that we never really imagined for ourselves And we got our start in ministry working with the poor and homeless in our town in San Diego. So we were brand new Christians, just started following Jesus. And there was a ministry to the poor and homeless in our church that needed some people to run it. And so we ended up doing that and we ended up turning it into a residential recovery program where we would have usually four to six homeless men would come and live in our house at one time. And we just work with them on basic life skills, uh, job skills, just how to do, how to do living in the quote-unquote real world with the rest of us. And people would stay from between one and three years, depending on their situation, as they kind of gained enough skills to go out and do life on their own. We did that for about six years when we first started to follow the Lord, and it was just a, really a constant joy. One of our kind of great delights over the years was the, the time that we did those things. And then about, I'm trying to think how many years ago it was, about 15 years ago or so now, we, long story short, our church needed somebody to pastor the whole church, and so we had to give the, our ministry to the poor and homeless away to another couple. We actually invited them to move into our house, so we moved out of the house, and they moved in, and they took over, and we, and we moved into uh, a nice little suburban neighborhood where we live now. The name of our neighborhood is Tierra Santa. And it's been a strange experience. We've been there now longer. So we have lived in this suburban neighborhood a lot longer now than we lived among the poor. And yet it still feels like a really strange cross-cultural experience for me. Uh, When we first moved in, I remember thinking, wow, everybody's lawn is so nicely manicured. Everybody's yard, their plants are all perfect. These people really take care of their property. And I'm thinking, I hope our neighbors don't really mind that much, that we don't take 
nearly as good care of our lawn as they do. And then I noticed everybody else parks their car in their garage. And our garage is a ping pong table and a giant pile of junk. And our cars are in the cracked driveway. And everybody else's cars are neatly tucked away behind their nicely painted garage doors. And I'm thinking, I wonder if our neighbors mind that our you know, not so great looking cars are kind of junking up their view uh, in front of our house. One of the most interesting things about our suburban neighborhood has been the neighborhood watch emails. We have this really active neighborhood watch group and we get really regular emails from them. One of the first emails I remember getting from the neighborhood watch group was saying that we should all consider sharing with each other who are the best gardeners and the best maids that work in the neighborhood and then we should try to consolidate so that we're all hiring the same gardeners and the same maids as a crime prevention measure. So this would be basically a way to keep you know, excess people who don't really belong in the neighborhood from milling around so that we can't tell who's criminals and who's not. And I remember reading that email over and over and over again and trying to tell myself that my new neighbors were not racists. And I kept thinking, am I, am I just being paranoid? Or when I read between the lines, does it say, could we limit the number of poor Hispanic people who work in our community? Um, and that's been, that's been a tough thing. So I have this kind of adversarial relationship with our neighborhood watch emails. Um, not only do we get a report of every crime that has been committed within like a three-mile radius of our neighborhood, not just the ones that are in our neighborhood, but we get emails about all sorts of you know, non-crimes, things that maybe could have been a crime but weren't. Um, so I wanted to read you actually just a few of our, our neighborhood watch emails. This one is from 2007. Why I have so many old emails, I don't know. My garage door is on the fritz, and I was not able to close it Saturday night. When I went out to my car in the morning, not having realized that the door was not closed and thus the car was not locked, I realized somebody had been sleeping in my car. I know this because the seat was lying back and some things had been moved, but nothing had been stolen. So you emailed the whole neighborhood because some things in your car were in a different place than you think that they were when you went to bed last night. And you're sure that somebody slept there, okay? I'm definitely locking my doors and doing what it takes to make sure my garage door gets fixed soon. This one's from 2009. Be aware of anyone out for a stroll carrying a large purse that looks weighted down and probably wearing a large hat to help disguise themselves. It's usually an indication she may have just burglarized a residence and probably with other people that went in totally different directions to be picked up by a driver elsewhere, sometimes after walking through the canyon area behind homes to the next street. I saw such a woman two days ago walking toward Claremont Mesa Boulevard. She was wearing a straw hat and whenever a car approached her, she'd turn her head away so as not to be noticed or recognized. She was also carrying a large purse. I made a circle around the block to get a description of her to give to the police. And at that time, she was in front of the canyon that runs behind our houses, and a man came around the corner walking toward her, and she seemed uncomfortable because of having someone come that close to her, I'm guessing, or seeing my car a second time. I came back around a third time to see if she was still walking toward Claremont Mesa Boulevard, but she was gone. Canyon? Someone pick her up? Don't know. This was so reminiscent of several years ago when, and then she narrates a story of a crime that was committed by a woman wearing a, a big hat and carrying a large purse. So, so this is a story that you emailed our whole neighborhood about a person you saw who reminded you of somebody who once committed a crime. Like, okay, that's really interesting. And then she concludes with, I bring this up to remind everyone to always be on the lookout around our neighborhood for people that just don't fit in. Just don't fit in is a common theme. Here's another one. Joe, a new resident in our neighborhood, told me that yesterday, Sunday, August 3rd, around 8 a.m., he saw a very short, approximately 5'2 Mexican male with facial hair, wearing long black jeans and a checkered shirt, snooping around Calle de Vida. He said his behavior was very suspicious, and when he knew he'd been spotted, the man walked away, disappearing past another house down the street. 
Be on the alert for such a person who might be roaming the neighborhood and checking doors. If you see him approaching houses and he doesn't look like he belongs, call the police. So we have this theme of watch out for anybody who doesn't look like they belong here. Um, here's one of my favorite ones. A couple weeks ago, my neighbor's car was stolen. Okay, that's legit. And tonight we noticed our recycling was stolen from our property sometime between Friday and tonight. Um, I didn't even know that trash counted as theft. <laughs> Somebody took your garbage and you're upset and you're emailing the whole neighborhood about it. And she included a photo of the guy that she saw taking her garbage with a note that it didn't appear to be organized crime. It's good to know that there's not an organized recycling theft program going on in my neighborhood. I'm going to share just one last one with you. Um, we do occasionally have real, actual, factual crimes in our neighborhood, and there was earlier this year a rash of thefts of potted plants. Isn't that strange? <laughs> potted plants disappearing off of people's front porches, and we got lots of emails about them. Um, our neighborhood has experienced another stolen plant pot from the front yard. Tom said somewhere between 1 and 3 a.m. a sensor went off. This morning he found his plant pot gone. And this was actually the moment when I finally started to connect with some of my new neighbors because we had this rash of great solution emails, one of which is we should put low jacks in our plant pots so that if, so, if they get taken we can find the thief. And somebody else said that we should, plant po we should put out potted, planted, potted uh, poison oak in our yards and see if anybody would take those. And I was starting to laugh and think that that might be a good idea. And I was finally starting to have fun when I got this email. Um, Two strands of moss are missing from my front yard. Can you send out a notice to neighbors? I sprayed them yesterday and now they're missing. So yesterday you had, what, maybe eight strands of moss? And today, after you watered them, it looks like they're, are you sure? How many strands? It's a strand of moss. So I'm just confused. Um, and I don't want to belittle what it feels like when somebody steals something from us, because I know actually, even if it's something small, that theft feels really bad. I know people who've had their houses broken into, and it feels like a, like a violation. And so I don't want to really belittle that. And I don't want to belittle what it, how much it matters to us that we feel safe in our own neighborhoods and things like that. But Honestly, it was really hard for me over and over again not to send sarcastic replies about first world problems every time I read one of these emails. And I just want to take a minute as we're leading into this session to talk about the things that alienate us about the communities around us. I think a lot of times for those of us who are justice-minded people, we end up feeling alienated by the community around us. You know, Rick and Becky Olmsted shared with us about being able to see the hurting around us and that, that moment of change when we start to realize, oh, I see and I understand and I have compassion and I care. And I think it's hard for us a lot of the time when we look around and we see other people who don't seem to see. And that hurts us and it alienates us and makes us feel frustrated. Or we look around and it seems like people care about things, but they care about really trivial things. Um, and sometimes, just as Christians, we feel alienated by the community around us because of the overall godless lifestyle that people around us seem to be living. Or sometimes we just feel alienated by other Christians because of the opposite, because they just seem judgy or whatever it is. Um, and I'm going to just take a, a minute just to unload that stuff. Um, so I shared with you some of my feelings and how I react and my sense of alienation from my new community. And I want to take just just a short time, just one or two minutes, to turn to like one or two people around you and just take a minute to share what about your current community, what about your neighborhood, what about people around you and the culture at large makes you feel alienated or makes you feel like you don't belong. So just two minute break and then we're gonna come back. Normally, we try to be a little bit less judgmental of the people around us, but sometimes it's good to just take a minute and get some of these feelings out. I noticed in my, in my coaching group today, there was a, we had a few conversations about just feeling frustrated with other people. So I want to just get a few of these things. Just Anybody have one that they'd be willing to share with us? Uh, a thing that makes you feel like you don't belong or makes you feel alienated? 
You guys all, I'm the only totally judgmental Christian around here. Everybody else is totally comfortable with everything. In, in the back over here. So um, I live in Orange County, and I'm not white. <laughs> and um, and I, a lot of Christians here, and I don't want to say everybody, but a whole bunch um, mix up their conservative politics with their Christianity and I feel like an outsider a lot. I find it extremely divisive and I and the dividing lines like I'm on the other side <laughs> of it. And the way you were describing it, it just related so much. Only sometimes I feel like it's about me. That <laughs> I'm sorry. And, and, and they cloak their, their politics. Uh, I, I hear a lot of mean-spiritedness in, in their politics that are cloaked in Christian terms. Thanks for sharing. Can we get just one more? Thank you. So just a few of the, just a few of the things that are, that are often milling around in our hearts as people who really care a lot um, about justice. And I think another piece, too, another thing that makes us feel disconnected from our communities is often just that we have really big dreams. I think when, you know, when Alexia shared and talked about, about Desmond Tutu and his just incredible uh, reconciliation skills, I, I felt just in awe all over again. I was like, I want to be you. Can I just be transplanted into his body and become him? He's like, he's so amazing. But often our minds are on big global issues and home starts to turn into just a place where we sleep and we store our stuff. And yet, a thing that we wanted to share with you today is just how God has been moving on our hearts just in recent years. God's been calling us more and more to become members of our community, to become actual participants in our neighborhood, and to really change our heart and change our attitude toward the people that are surrounding us. We're going to read in just a minute from Jeremiah 29. It's... A familiar passage, the Israelites are in exile in Babylon, and they have every reason under the sun to feel alienated. I mean, they're there against their will. They're surrounded by a godless community with unfamiliar customs, completely different values. So all of the reasons why we often feel alienated as justice-minded Christians in this world, and their hearts are elsewhere. They long to be in Jerusalem. And so it'd be easy for them to think of the places they live as just a place to sleep and to store their stuff. And yet here's the, the message that God gives to them instead. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And so they have every reason under the sun to feel disengaged, and yet God is calling them to engage. And I think likewise with us that God is calling us to change our hearts. He's calling us to see our neighborhoods and the communities around us with different eyes. And so we're going to share with you just some of the ways that God's been speaking that to us. Um, We've been thinking about this lately in terms of movement from short-term projects to putting down long-term roots from competition to partnership, um, from independence to interdependence. Uh, I want to take a minute just to pray, and then Jamie's going to start to share on Jeremiah 29. So Lord, uh, just ask that you would give us your heart. And God, wherever our heart's not in conformity with yours, would you change it? Um, God, I ask that you would open our eyes wider, and that we would see more, and that we would become more and more like you. Would you help us to hear your voice today? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I think a lot of us know this text and probably love this text. There are, you might have noticed there are 12 commands in this text, and they're, they're all commands. And um, if we go back to Jeremiah 29.1, there's this really 
heavy, rich verse that says, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the survivors among the exiles, which is not really a pretty picture, is it? You know that you know, in the exile, most people lost their lives. Many others had their eyes gouged out. Just this genocidal, maniacal, horrible process of what it meant to, to be in exile, to be conquered by the Babylonians and carried there. And there's this remnant who are no doubt longing for Jerusalem, longing for the kingdom of God. We long, they were longing for the kingdom, which, you know, no doubt for their minds meant return to Jerusalem and victory over the pagan nations. And, and then Jeremiah you know, sends this letter with these 12 commands, and, and it's a poem and a letter in good Hebrew style. There are six couplets. And so we have a, a Hebrew poem that is, that's full of commands. It's beautiful, uh, and it's also a letter you know, kind of communicating God's will to the exiles. So it's, it's build houses and settle down. There's the first couplet, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what is grown there. And, and as we walk through these, just pay attention. God is he's challenging their attitude towards the city, isn't he? God's speaking to their attitude. He's speaking to their heart for the city. And, and maybe even at a deep level, he's challenging their idea of home plant gardens, settle down, marry, and have sons and daughters. And then the next couplet really can tell, tells us, okay, that's, they're at somewhat of a cultural distance. Find wives for your sons and give away your daughters in marriage. So we see just the parental responsibility there. Uh, so that they too will have sons and daughters increase in number and don't decrease. Those are commands. And in the Hebrew, it's literally become a great number. It's not just get more than you are. It's become a great number. Uh, do not be a command. Do not be a few number. Now, this is a people who have been slaughtered, raped, uh, physically destroyed, and are just a handful, and God's giving them a command. You may not, do not be small. Be great in number. And then wonderfully, in the, the verse that captivates, I think, many of our hearts, seven, Seek the peace, and here's the final couplet, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord. So seek the peace of the city, pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, or literally, and I'll come back to this in a little bit, uh, literally, if it has shalom, then you will have shalom. Uh, but uh, the implication, of course, if your city doesn't have shalom, you won't. So seek the peace, pray for the city, because uh, that's where your shalom is going to come from, actually. I, if you had, I'm going to go back five years, so time machine, 2009. Five years ago, if you'd given me a survey or asked me just kind of confidentially, hey, do you, do you feel like you understand? Are you seeking justice? Are you committed to your city? Do you care about the poor? I would have said absolutely. Absolutely. We grew up doing residential ministry. I, uh, I, I care about our city. I care about justice. I've lived in justice work. I remember going through old Wimber notes in the very, these very old notes I have that somehow got thrown away. I wasn't at the lecture. Teach a person to fish, you know, is better than giving them a fish. And then this is old Wimber notes. The first time I think I ever saw this, but it's better yet to give them a permit so that they can fish anywhere they want. And I thought, well, that's like 1970. And I'm looking at this. This is like pre-Morro Bay, like early, early Wimber training. I'm like, the justice thing is right here. Like, we've always, we've always had this in our roots. I love this. And yet I had a series of aha moments that destabilized me. Maybe I don't get it as much as I thought. Aha moment number one was, I'm going to give you three just snapshot aha moments for me. Aha moment number one was I'm sitting in a, a beginning doctoral ministry program, and, and uh, the professor said, what is your neighborhood? What's the neighborhood of your church? What neighborhood are you rooted in? And I well, I mean, I don't have a neighborhood. Our church meets in this really fancy schmancy neighborhood because it was the cheapest school we could rent. But that's not our neighborhood, and I don't do anything in the neighborhood where I live. Our neighborhood slogan, Tierra Santa, when you go into the neighborhood, there's a slogan that says an island in the hills. So it's really like this. I'm like, well, 
There's a narrative in that imagination, isn't there? There's really a narrative. <laughs> I live there for a bunch of weird reasons. That's not my neighborhood. <laughs> and I care about people in these neighborhoods, but I felt like I don't really have one. And then we, I did some interviews with a team in our church. What's our neighborhood? What, church is, what neighborhood has God called us to? And almost everybody had my same answer. And my professor said, do you think that's interesting that nobody thinks you have a Can you be really rooted if you don't have a neighborhood? And I just, it was like, I felt the floor shaking, like, ooh, that might be a hard question. And I actually, because I'm defensive, Michelle will back me up on this. I got mad. I'm <laughs> like, I know what it means to be missional. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a vineyard pastor. I'm a white man with power. I, I oversee churches that are missional and blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, but you don't have a neighborhood. You're not rooted, are you? And it just felt shaky. Second, second aha moment. Uh, Michelle and I and some others got together with a group of local pastors and decided to talk to our city council person about how we could partner with the city for the needs of the city. So we have the city council member comes excitedly to a pastor's meeting. She's glad to be there. She brings her assistant. One of the first questions we decided to ask was, hey, what churches in our area are just doing a really good job uh, working with the city? Who is addressing the needs of the city? What are churches doing? And she just had the, and she's, by the way, uh, a, a believer. And she just sort of like, whoa, I've never heard that question before. I was kind of thinking. She's like, it's a really good question. I, churches must be doing something. Well, so I can't think of anything. I'm not sure a church is addressing the needs of our city. She sort of looked around. She's like, well, the Jewish community center gives rides to the elderly. It doesn't matter whether they're Jewish or not. They give rides, but I'm not. I'm not sure there's a church that does anything that I know of. And then she said, well, there must be something. I probably just don't know about it. And then she asked her assistant, well, do you know about anything? And he looked at her and was like, I can't think of anything. I can't. And it was just another aha, like, oh. Now, there are churches that do lots of stuff in our city, but it struck me in the context. At the time, I and, and others were, were reading Jeremiah 29. If we're really collaborating in some significant way, addressing the heart of the city, probably somebody would know about it. And it was like one of those aha moments. Maybe we're not as connected with the city as I thought. Third aha moment, we were working on Luke 10 with some, with a, I had a team of folks uh, at our church just thinking about loving neighborhood receiving hospitality, pressing into Jeremiah 29 and Luke 10. How do we just sort of uh, become woven into the fabric of the city? And we just asked a very simple question, like around how many of us know our neighbors and, and gosh, we haven't, how many people have been over to neighbors' houses lately? How many people have been just invited over for any reason? And we went around and nobody there had been invited over by any neighbor. Well, that's interesting. None of us have been invited over by any neighbor that we know of. Let's think really hard. Has a neighbor invite us over? And in this whole group, everybody, no, not one person has invited us over. And then we started talking about, well, why is that? And, and somebody said, I don't think I know any of my neighbors. And then we went around and realized we mostly don't know our neighbors. And then the revelation moment was one of our kind of bright young leaders like, I don't think our neighbors would like us. I mean, they're, they're, you know, we do different things. I don't think they'd like us. And we sort of had this conversation. So we're saying that we're pretty convinced that many of our neighbors wouldn't like us if they did know us. And yet we believe that we're a very missional church. Could it be that there's a disconnect there somewhere? And, and so we just asked the question, what would it take for our neighbors to like us? And it was like a stumper. Like, what would it take for our neighbors to actually like us enough to spontaneously invite us over? And so it started, you know, us down this journey, uh, you know, we're, it's sort of a collective journey, Michelle and I, but really our whole church, but moving from short-term projects to long-term roots. Because Jeremiah is really picturing, he's not only challenging them to think in terms of like years or you're going to be here for decades. He's challenging them to think about the prosperity of the city in their children and their children's children generation. What does it mean to partner in your city in a multi-generational way. What does it mean to take a multi-generational view of the city? And I realized if I was honest with myself, I had always held 
San Diego loosely, like we might be somewhere else soon. We could be in Southeast Asia. We could be anywhere. I often said to people, you know, the Lord's kept us in San Diego till now, but I don't know what's next. You know, even as we were um, doing residential ministry, it, it wasn't in partnership really with the city. And it certainly, I had in my heart the attitude, we might be gone soon. So it wasn't woven into the fabric of what was going on. It really, even at a multi-year care for the poor kind of thing, had I would say a much shorter term view than Jeremiah's pointing towards. And we'll talk a little bit more about what actual collaboration has looked like in our context. But I wonder if for all of us and those of us who are forming alliances and and working towards justice, if we need to look again at the time horizon, Are we collaborating for justice in such a way as to bless our children's children? Is that our aim? I remember Eugene Peterson saying, all you need to know if you want to learn how to pastor is commit to your neighborhood until you die. Go to the closest church. Don't ever go anywhere else. And you'll learn a pastor's heart. And it was one of those things, if you've ever read Peterson, there's some things that I think I just skip right over, like tear that page out. I'm not ever reading that again. That's ridiculous advice. That's un-American. I don't know what he's talking about. And then as I got older, I thought, well, that's kind of wise, pretty radical, but kind of wise. If I really believe that these are the people I'm with, I would have to learn to love them regardless of who they are. And that actually is what shepherding is about. Maybe maybe he knew something. We want to move from short-term projects to long-term roots. And Michelle is going to come up and talk about partnership. So the second movement that we wanted to talk about is from competition to partnership. And I think that this really has a lot to do with how we see the other. How do we see other people and how do we define us? And how do we define them? What does it look like for us to broaden our concept of, of who belongs to us and of who is included in our sense of our own community. Um, Again, Jeremiah 29 says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And so there's this call to be with the city and to be for the city, to really see ourselves as being part of the neighborhood, part of the community that is around us. I mentioned Jamie and I started out in ministry working with the homeless, and when we we spent the years that we spent just hanging out on the street, sitting down outside, talking with people who lived outdoors, inviting them into our homes where they would come over and shower and study the Bible with us, and we would pray for them. We could tell that we were really succeeding with the homeless community when the rumors started to circulate on the streets that we had once been homeless. And of course, when people asked about us, we asked us about it, we said it wasn't true. But we knew that their one of us was what people were saying, and we knew that because they believed that we were them, that we'd succeeded in connecting with the community. And yet during that whole time, we had kind of an adversarial relationship with the rest of the neighborhood. Uh, A lot of the people in the community where we did most of our outreach believed that if we went away, the homeless people would go away too. Now, that wasn't true. The reason why we lived in that neighborhood was because all the homeless people were there. So we were following the homeless population. The homeless population was not following us. But the belief was that if we provided no services for them, they would leave. And so the goal was nobody ever give them anything and they will go away. Uh, And so we were the problem. And so our neighbors were finding sleeping homeless people and hosing them down with their garden hoses while we're inviting them into our house to take a shower and do their laundry. They were calling the police trying to find out if there was some sort of legal reason that they could come up with to shut us down. And over and over again, the police would say that we weren't doing anything illegal and we couldn't be shut down. Jamie went to numerous city council meetings and tried to be as, we keep using the word winsome, has tried to be as winsome as possible, but to 
no avail. We had actually an across-the-street neighbor once who got really mad because of a homeless man in a wheelchair who had been sitting in front of her house cussing on his way to our house. And I went over there and apologized, and I brought her a vase full of flowers and wrote her a little letter. And about 15 minutes later, the vase full of flowers reappeared on my front porch with my letter and a nasty letter saying that she is an experienced litigator and I should be expecting to hear more from her soon. Um, so we just kind of gave up on having a good relationship with the rest of the community. I mean, we started to really feel like, wow, the, you know, the rest of the neighborhood uh, is, is kind of against us. Um, and once again, though, just in recent years, God's been really forcing us to challenge that kind of thinking. So I don't want you guys to stay in that place. I know that's been your experience, but I, I need you to rethink again what it looks like to be a part of your community. How can you find shared goals in your community? How can you move from the place that you've been to believing together with the community that we can invest in building our city together? Um, right now where our church meets, we have a mosque, which is right next to us. We are adjacent to one another on the street. We meet in an elementary school. And then if you Across the street, there's a mosque right across the street. So we're kind of adjacent places. Um, and so from, from kind of a, my old mindset, from more of a competitive mindset, then we're God's house and they're the enemy's house, right? I mean, this is kind of, this is kind of how I grew up as a Christian thinking about other religions. This is the house of God and this is the house of the enemy. And we are, you know, in competition with them for people's souls, right? And yet... God has been telling me, I want you to think about them as potential partners. What does it look like from God's perspective? Because from God's perspective, kingdom warfare isn't about this is God's house, this is the enemy's house. From a kingdom perspective, this is God's city. And every person that we know is a potential ally in the mission to bless and heal the city. Um, but this has been a hard thing for me to think through. Um, it's hard enough just to think about partnering with other churches because um, I'm always finding myself thinking, yeah, but in the end, I want them to go to our church, not to go to their church. Yeah. Okay, I know the other pastors in the room have thought that before. <laughs> but this is even harder, right? Because I, I want them to learn about Jesus. I don't want them to become followers of Muhammad. Um, and yet we've been on this journey of how can we start to see the Muslim community as allies in blessing the city. Um, it's been kind of a long journey. started out by me going to an Intro to Islam class, thanks to Rick Love telling people to go to an Intro to Islam class. Turns out that the local mosque does have an Intro to Islam class, just like Rick said it would. Went there, spent an hour alone with the imam, since I was the only one who went, and got to ask all my questions and learn a lot about what he was about. Ended up asking him to come over and to share at our church a little bit about what it is that, that he believes. Um, and it's really, over the years, long story short, grown into uh, a strong friendship. Shared meals over at each other's homes. And one of the things that I have learned about this imam is that he has an incredible passion for justice. Um, He's the one who is connected to the poor in our community. The immigrant population of our neighborhood worships at his mosque. He knows them. He's connected to the poor, and he advocates for them. He's involved in organizations for worker justice around the city, advocating for the people that he cares for. And as we've built friendship with him, he's been inviting us to participate in that with him. Um, so one of the things he's been telling us over the years is we need to do a service project together. We need to find some way that we can, that your church and our mosque can serve the community together. And we'll, we'll go out into the community and we'll bless them um, as one. And it's funny because a few years ago, my fear when we first started to talk about this was, well, if we do that, what if people convert to Islam? I don't want to be out there telling people it's equally good to follow Jesus or Muhammad. And so how can we really do that? But one thing that we're finding as we're continuing to build this relationship is that that fear is not founded. Um, 
we're finding that partnering with non-Christians builds the reputation of Jesus in beautiful ways in our city, in ways that we would have never imagined before we got started doing that. I want to show you a picture. Um, the woman with her head covered, uh, her name is Lalia. She's actually the wife of uh, the imam at our neighborhood mosque. And on the, in the picture on the right, we're in our children's, my children's pastor's kitchen cooking. She's showing us how to make an Algerian chicken dish. Um, and then in the picture on the, no, sorry, in the picture on the left, I've got my, my sides wrong. In the, in the other picture, she's with her family. This was at an a interfaith center for worker justice banquet where she was honored for her work with the Girl Scouts. And again, they've been the ones who've been leading us into learning about what's going on for justice in our city. Um, and at this banquet, we went just to, to meet people, to do some networking, and just to congratulate and celebrate with her. Um, but every time they would introduce us, like, the, the imam would say, these guys are evangelicals with this look of like, can you believe they're here? I think partly because we as evangelicals have a reputation for not playing well with others. But I think also because he's thinking, what he's really saying is these guys are the real deal. These guys are hardcore Jesus freaks and they're here with us and they wanna be our friends. And I think that that speaks worlds for the reputation of Christ in our community. And one thing that I've just been learning and learning and learning as we've been exploring the idea of partnering with others in our community, both Christians and non-Christians, is that it builds a reputation for Christ. We've got a creation care ministry at our church that's working with uh, a group named Surf Riders, and they do uh, beach cleanups every so often together with surf riders. And it was funny because when we first started, my thought was, gosh, you know, I wish that our creation care ministry was big enough that we could do our own beach cleanup. We didn't have to sort of, you know, tag along as a little contingent with, you know, the other people who are doing beach cleanups. But now I'm thinking, oh my goodness, why would we ever do something like this alone where it was going to be mostly other Christians coming when we could be when we could be the salt of the earth, when we could be together with the community, when we could be a part of something that people in our city actually care about. The scriptures say the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. It's not a picture of the church as a, a private fortress alone in the city, but it's a picture of Christians just everywhere in the city, worked all the way through the dough so that the whole city is blessed by the kingdom of God. Uh, one last little story is um, we have a, a Love 146 task force at our church. They're working to prevent, and prevent child sex trafficking, to abolish child sex trafficking. Um, and they sponsored an event actually together with another church and the, the task force leaders came up to me and they said, you know, we want to know if it's okay. There's this other church and they have a serve day once a year or so where they don't go to church on Sunday, but they do a fundraiser or some kind of other service event and they want to have a run benefiting Love 146 and they want us to, you know, to go because we have connections with the organization and they don't and, and speak at it and, and help with it and you know, hey, is that okay? Because it's not really going to be our event. It's going to be their event. I'm like, are you kidding? That would be great. I don't care. You, so you guys are going to raise money and you're going to give it to um, abolishing child sex trafficking? That's fantastic. I don't care if it's our event or if it's their event. And then they said, well, it is going to be on Sunday morning. So, I mean, I'm assuming we can't really recruit people from our church, you know, to go to this because it would be Sunday morning during church. And I realized that I probably wouldn't have said the same thing a few years ago, but my my reaction was, you know, are you kidding? I don't care if they come to our church on Sunday. So if we share, come up, do an announcement, recruit, invite people to go out and to, to participate in this thing that you're doing. It doesn't have to be about us and it doesn't have to be about our church. Um, just a, a last thing before I give it back to Jamie. Which is, you know, what, if it, what if Christians became known as the least defensive people that you could ever meet? What if Christians became known as the people who befriend everyone, who are willing to, to work together with anyone, who love the city, 
We work to build the community. Wouldn't that just be the perfect picture of Christ and his kingdom coming? Back to Janie. Okay, so we're going from short-term to long-term, from competition to partnerships. And uh, the last thing we want to say out of this, is this working? Yes. Is that we want to, we want to move from independence to interdependence. Let's go back to uh, Sunday school. Some of us didn't go to some Sunday school. Some of us did. But if you, if you just get the Sunday school kind of question, quiz, you know, end of the week, summer, you're going to take home to your parents. Where does your peace come from? Where does your shalom come from? What is, what is our answer to that question? Jesus. Yeah, it comes from God. That's where it comes from. We know the answer. And yet, Jeremiah 29 has an interesting twist on that, doesn't it? Pray to the Lord. Seek the shalom of the city. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you will prosper. If your city has shalom, that's where your shalom is going to be found. And I think there's definitely, you know, the whole, the whole point of praying to the Lord for it is that it's the Lord who provides shalom for Babylon. And so there's true, it's in an ultimate way, Jeremiah's theology is that shalom is a God-given gift. And yet there's this mediation that our shalom comes from the city, uh, that our shalom comes from an interdependent posture. And I think it's not an exaggeration to say that our, our sort of, you know, evangelical roots. We're not in a, a part of the tribe that has really done well on interdependence. It's, it's often easier to live the, I think, the Jesus-following life independent, at least from our city. We often work within our own sort of faith groups, but, but not in an interdependent way. And at stake here is like agency. Are we the donors? Do we have all the goods? Do we really have all the spiritual wisdom? Are we giving to those without? Or, or are the people we're working with and loving and caring for are our neighbor's agents as well? Does that make sense? Is it all donor-client or is it this really independent, mutual kind of learning community? I, and, and the whole call of Jeremiah is to live life deeply within our city. There's a great book, new, um, called the uh, the New Parish. Um, Paul Sparks and Tim Sorens are two of the authors, and they talk about uh, living above place, the church above place, where our attitude is that we're fundamentally doing things to or for our neighborhoods, but we don't have a, a radical sense of being in. And they talk about the radical locatedness of Jesus, like the incarnation is like radically in place, right? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, not everywhere. He grew up in Nazareth, not everywhere. And, and we, following Jesus means living like deeply located lives where we are interdependent, where we're connected to our neighbors. I want to take just a very brief sojourn into French sociology, and I will promise not to kill you with this. Um, because one of the themes in this conference, if, I think if we're listening closely, has been uh, how we see people, right? Our perception of the other, our perception of the stranger, our perception of the poor, our perception of the immigrant. How do we see? And uh, French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu would make the argument that how we see people does not come from our beliefs, it does not come so much from uh, things like theology or worldview, but it comes from who we spend our time with and how we spend our time. If you want to uh, really come to see your Muslim neighbor uh, as a subject, as a fully human person, live with them. Spend time in their home. Eat the food they make. Stay there until the habits become familiar. Bourdieu talks about something he calls a feel for the game, that our perception comes out of our, our habits. When we can anticipate what comes next, we're starting to know people, right? For your good friends, you don't ask where to get the food. You know where they keep it. You know what kind of food it is. Even before you start thinking, it is okay for me to get food in this house, your body just knows on a precognitive kind of level, you know them. And you know the 
terms of the relationship. And Jeremiah 29 is pushing us into relationships where we have that kind of deep, habitual time spent with neighbors. If we want to know the immigrant community, I think it's great to hear like powerfully articulate and inspiring talks like Alexia Salvatierra. That was phenomenal. But it's another step, isn't it, to live with immigrants and to learn their habits and to hear their problems and to learn the language. I remember eating lunch in Tijuana in the Playas area with three kids who spoke great English who had just been deported, who were born in the U.S., uh, but their mom wasn't a citizen, and so they got deported as a family, but they've never been to a Mexican school, and they speak very, very broken. Like, I spoke as good Spanish as they did, and, they <laughs> and I speak terrible Spanish. And it was just like a different reality, eating lunch with a seven-year-old whose big thing is he wants to get along in a Tijuana school because he's been deported and can't go to a U.S. school. It's different. And so there's this call to to interdependence. Uh, I want to give you just a, a couple snapshots from our community. Uh, one, we for 10 years we've been working with this ministry called Bridge of Hope in the refugee community. Our city has become a city of refugees. It didn't used to be that way. But like many cities, refugees have flooded in. Uh, the woman on the right is this woman named Sherry from our place who had a dream Sunday morning during the ministry time to work with people in transition in City Heights and started doing clothes and furniture giveaways and that sort of stuff right when the immigrants started flooding in and now it's gone from a giveaway to a community center. Well, this summer they did something called World Refugee Day and uh, a cool aspect of this was a, a series of conversations with immigrant kids like what would you want to do in the community center um, what would excite you? What would you dream for? And they said, we would love to do a fundraiser so we can give back to the UN. And all these kids, their answer was, we, you know, the UN did a lot to get us here. And it was interesting to hear from refugee kids that they wanted to give to the UN. That's a little bigger picture than I would have thought a 10-year-old or 11-year-old. I think if I had been the fill in the blank, they probably want, I don't know, school supplies or I don't know what they want. They want some fun stuff. You know, I think of my kids, they want let's a PlayStation, I don't know. But they wanted to give back to the UN. So they put together a fundraiser where they all did dances and a whole bunch of people uh, were invited to this community center. And folks from our church and some other organizations worked together to put on like a whole day of music and dance that raised funds. And then they sent a big check back to the UN as thanks from the refugee community. And in the midst of it, uh, Jesus was like threaded through this whole thing. Like there's all sorts of levels of like worship was happening and people who are learning to follow Jesus. But the amazing kind of joyful thing was to partner with the neighborhood in a way that I think is kind of new territory for us. Like hearing from the refugee community, not here's what we're going to do for you. We're going to bring bags of clothes. But rather, what would you want to do that we can help make space for? And the kind of really wonderful ideas that came out of that. And so it's been a joyful journey for us to move from sort of an independent, what I might say, donor-client view over to an interdependent partnership view of the neighborhood where we're learning. Ah, two more quick stories. One, one more Muslim story because we've just had this incredible relationship. Uh, in June, I, I got a call from Taha, the imam of the mosque. He's like, you've got to come to Point Loma like tomorrow or something. I, forget. I think it was like two days or one day. It's like there's an amazing human trafficking conference. So the speakers are going to be amazing. Meet me down there. So I'm like, yes, I will go. We care about human trafficking. So I go to human trafficking conference, and he's there and hugging me, and we're hearing amazing teaching about trafficking in our city. And then I went home and told Michelle, there's this like amazing trafficking network in our city. And she was like, we already work in that network. Our, 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 our task force is doing that. And I was like, oh, okay, good. I'm glad we're involved. I didn't realize that. But the interesting thing for me is a whole new posture of imam as tour guide into justice in the city. 
and even getting me in touch with our own congregation, uh, but certainly with the pain of the city and really understanding that there's something mutual. And I don't know where that's all going. I would love to dream for the day where we are all following Jesus together and where worship is going up from every corner of our city. And there's this sense of, I don't know what the end of this ride is, but it's pretty exciting. And I wonder if God's calling the church into more of a Jeremiah 29 posture right at this time, where he's really calling us to seek the peace of our cities, to pray for our cities, to have a sense of interdependence that maybe, just maybe, the prosperity of the followers of Jesus really does depend in some significant way on the prosperity and the abundance of our cities themselves. And I think there's lots of reasons to make the case that that's, that's probably a true statement for him. Last little story just to encourage those of you who might be discouraged over the long haul. Going back to the days when we were doing residential ministry, there was a guy named Kevin who I felt like was my personal thorn in the side. I don't know if you've ever, if you get into justice work, you might run into one of these. And he used to mock me um, sort of as a habit. Like one of his favorite things to do was to mock me. Uh, we, we'd be outside serving food or praying for people or worshiping, and he would always call me son of man. Son of man! Son of man! Please don't call me son of man anymore. <laughs> My name is Jamie. <laughs> and, and being mo- <laughs> This is getting old. Uh, at one point, uh, he used to yell free Barabbas whenever I would speak. <laughs> I'd do outside sermons. Stand up, free Barabbas! <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. That was great. Can you do that again as loudly as possible? One of the local police officers told me that he had the most tickets of anyone who lived outside in the beach area, which was amazing. He had an epic number of public urination tickets and many other tickets. I'm like, I know, he's a bummer to me too. And they were like, can you do anything about this guy? I'm like, no, can you do anything about this guy? I'm like, can anybody do anything about Kevin? And one day we were out just with a pot of chili serving chili. Kevin got to the front of the line, and he fell down on his knees, like in front of me, like worshipfully. And I was like, get up, Kevin. I'm so sick of this. And he was weeping, and I thought it was like joke weeping. I'm like, man, stop. (laughs) Don't cry. It's like, I'm giving my life to Jesus. I was like, no, you're not. (laughs) You are not. It's like, I repent. I'm like, no, no, I'm not going through this game. Stop. (laughs) You can't repent right now. Get up and have a bowl of chili. (laughs) Trying to talk someone out of faith. Like, if you got to the point where, like, stop it. Stop repenting right now. This is not real. He just wept and wept. I'm pretty slow on the uptake, but I eventually realized he is coming into the kingdom right now. And he moved in with us shortly later into our residential care. And a couple of days later, he bit his tongue almost in half going through the DTs. He came up to our room, banging on our door in the middle of the night. Boom, 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 open the door. He's just pouring blood. He'd had a seizure. And his tongue was, his teeth were locked straight through his tongue. We walked with him through a couple of years of getting sober, eventually sent him to another recovery program that was virtually military because he just needed structure so much. Every year on our son's birthday, he calls and says, how is Squeegee? He's become maybe the most regular tither to our church. He sends a check every month. He drives trucks all over the country. And it's this guy following Jesus who's now a friend and someone who prays for me and prays for our kids and gives to the poor and always asks if we're still working in Thailand, if he can help in any way. And sometimes we need a long-term view because you don't know when the door of heaven's opening for someone. And sometimes we need a partnership view because you you never know who's going to fund your next dream. Maybe it's your neighbor. You know, sometimes we need an independent, dependent view. Years later, he would pray for me in some of my most brokenness. Kevin gets grace better than anybody I know. I could tell him anything. 
once told him I'm struggling with pornography. He's like, man, that's nothing. That's nothing. Uh, it's something. <laughs> but he's like got the sharp edge of grace in my life. He is a great ally in the faith. God's calling us to be rooted in our cities, to follow Jesus. The Justice Network Podcast.